I want to entitle what um, uh, I'm going to say this morning as fully resourced, certain to succeed. Quite simple. Fully resourced, certain to succeed. I'm sure we're all aware of projects that um, we know of which have failed because they have not been adequately resourced. Uh, we were watching BBC Two program last night. Um, many programs this week have focused on 70 years ago, the evacuation from uh, Dunkirk, and uh, one of uh, the soldiers evacuated in 1940 uh, was being interviewed in this program. He mentioned a particular action that he and um, uh, his company were involved in, and they were sent into this um, action, each man just with a rifle and five rounds of ammunition, and they failed. They had not been fully resourced. Uh, they were bound to fail. I couldn't help contrasting that with um, uh, another wonderful program I saw recently on television about um, uh, the uh, development and the, the maiden flight of the, uh, the A380, you know, the largest commercial uh, airliner now uh, flying. Um, A380, you're all familiar with these things. Uh, Airbus Industries based in Toulouse. And this wonderful documentary showed uh, uh, the whole process from uh, the engineers designing it, the uh, workers constructing it, uh, all the money that was invested in it, all the, the plans of the management to market this, uh, this great new aircraft across the world, and there was the first flight. Uh, the plane was successful. It did even more than was um, uh, anticipated. And there was a terrific sense of confidence among all of those involved in this project. This thing is going to succeed. This aircraft is going to be a big uh, player uh, in the world aviation industry for decades to come. That's what they felt. We've just read Acts 2. Uh, sustaining that imagery, the maiden flight of the gospel of Christ. The first uh, proclamation by followers of Jesus Christ of the cross and the resurrection and the lordship of Jesus, the Savior of the world. Uh, if you want to sustain the imagery, the, um, uh, the history of the Old Testament, and then supremely the coming and the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus, that was the uh, design and construction process of the gospel. And here's the maiden flight in Jerusalem as this project of God's gets underway. God's great project in history, that his worldwide church will be built as the gospel of his son is proclaimed by his church to all the nations. Now, I thought, what would be the best thing to do uh, on a mission Sunday? Some of the alternatives were to take up some of the challenges in your mission policy statement. We made use of that in Eden. Thank you for doing it, by the way. We made use of that in Eden as we drafted our own. I thought we could focus on um, some of the joys and challenges uh, facing your mission partners. There's something about that on the website. I could have found out more. There has obviously been some emphasis uh, this morning on your mission's connections and those for whom you pray. I thought, well, I think the best thing we can do is to try and focus how God has resourced his church 
that throughout the ages and until the job is done, he's resourced his church so that the gospel can be preached and will be preached to the ends of the earth. Now, most of our study is going to be in Acts 2, but we can't ever get into anywhere in Acts without looking at Acts 1, verse 8. And this is the verse that stands over the whole of the book of Acts. Uh, Indeed, it stands over the whole of Christian history and the preaching of the gospel. Acts 1, verse 8. The promise of the risen Christ to his church. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The Lord has done his work. He shouted out on the cross, it is finished. Atonement has been made. The curtain in the temple was torn in two, signifying there's a, an open way into the holy presence of God through what Christ has done on the cross. He's been raised from the dead. He's going to ascend to the Father. He's going to receive the Holy Spirit and pour out on the church the Holy Spirit. Thus making sure that the church is resourced, equipped, completely ready to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth. And that, I believe, is the best thing that we can think about on a missions Sunday. So that we can be really encouraged to fulfill whatever our part in taking the gospel to the ends of the earth is. And everyone and every church has a part in that. God has resourced us to preach the good news to the ends of the earth. Now, at the beginning of Acts chapter 2, in a sense, as the engines were getting revved before takeoff and Peter began to preach, there were special, dramatic, supernatural events which accompanied the pouring out of the Holy Spirit upon the church. And in those events, we see God giving emphatic, vivid assurance to his church that he is resourcing this project. We'll look at the three remarkable things that occurred, each one of them giving an assurance that God is resourcing his people as he pours out the Spirit. Number one, verse two. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. A great sign to the church then and the church now. Now, a few years ago, I'm sure we all saw on our televisions uh, shots of Hurricane Katrina uh, hitting uh, Louisiana and Mississippi. And I was very taken with some of those shots where people were inside secure buildings, but the sense of the wind buffeting the outside of the building was enormous. And although they were safe, they didn't look as if they felt very safe. And I was reading this verse at that time about the violent wind on the day of Pentecost, and I thought, my, that wind was inside the building where they were sitting. How overwhelming that must have been. It's overwhelming enough to be inside a strong building with the wind outside. But imagine that intensity of sound of violent wind inside all around you. 
What a massive impact was made upon those first believers. What would it have said to them? Significantly, it didn't terrify them and reduce them to being quivering wrecks. Moments later, they were out in the streets of Jerusalem, so they were not reduced to quivering wrecks. It would have assured them that the preaching of the gospel would bring spiritual life to those who are spiritually dead. How did it manage to do that? Well, those first Christians knew their Old Testament, and as Jews they were very familiar with a well-known story in the book of Ezekiel. I hope you are too. A story about the way in which a strong wind from God brought life into a situation of seemingly irreversible death. Do you know the story? Let me remind you of it, uh, or introduce you to it if you don't. Uh, You'll find it in Ezekiel chapter 37. I'd encourage you, read this chapter carefully, and then go back and read um, the early verses of Acts 2 once more. In a wonderful vision, God takes Ezekiel and sets him in the middle of a valley full of bones. And God leads him to and fro among the bones. He wants Ezekiel to get a feel for this situation of irreversible death. We're told Ezekiel saw a great many bones. They were very dry, says the account. In other words, this is death on a vast scale and death which seems to be irreversible. These aren't even, you see, corpses of those who've died recently, just a few days earlier. Just a vast collection of dry bones. Death. Irreversible death. Or is it? God says to Ezekiel, Can these bones live? Ezekiel replies, Sovereign Lord, you alone know. Don't know whether he's hedging his bets. Is Ezekiel thinking, well, I can't see dead bones coming to life. Lord, you're sovereign and you know. Or maybe Ezekiel caught some excitement and anticipation in God's tone of voice and thought, well, Lord, if anyone can make these bones live, you can and you're sovereign. And I think God must have really enjoyed doing what he then did. Because he told Ezekiel, to preach to the bones. Now, I've seen people fast asleep when I've been preaching, and I've seen signs of lack of uh, concentration, but I've uh, never actually felt I was preaching to dry bones. Never as bad as that. God said to Ezekiel, say to these dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. This is what the sovereign Lord says to these bones, dead bones I will make breath enter you and you will come to life Ezekiel did what God said spoke God's word to the dry dead bones first the bones were covered with tendons flesh and skin things were beginning to happen God said carry on prophesy to the breath. Prophesy, son of man, and say to it, this is what the sovereign Lord says, come breath from the four winds and breathe into these slain that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath entered them 
they came to life and stood up on their feet a vast army. Take the trouble to read Ezekiel 37. You'll see a little footnote in your Bible that explains that the Hebrew word translated breath also means wind or spirit. So there's a neat little association going on in the account between breath and wind and spirit. So the significance of this vision in Ezekiel is this. God's mighty spirit comes and breathes life into dead bones when God's word is spoken by Ezekiel. And the valley of dry bones becomes a valley full of life. Living people. And the point of the vision given to Ezekiel and reminding the church in Acts 2, given to the church as well, saying the same thing. The point is that where there is seemingly irreversible spiritual death, when God's word is spoken and when God's spirit comes in power, something is turned right around. Apparently, irreversible spiritual death is replaced by spiritual life. That violent wind, that powerful wind from heaven on the day of Pentecost sent that wonderful message to those first Christians in Jerusalem and to us as well that the world may be, indeed it is, a place of irreversible spiritual death. But when God's people speak God's word into that situation of death, God's spirit will come and there will be spiritual life given by the power of God's Spirit in place of death. And many, totally dead to God, they don't acknowledge Him or love Him or find their joy in Him. Instead, they defy Him and ignore Him. They are as dead to God as were the dry bones in Ezekiel's vision. But through God's Word being spoken to them, and through the power of God's Spirit working in them, they will be given new life through Jesus Christ. They will become alive to God. They'll turn to Him, be reconciled to Him. They'll begin to love Him and find joy in Him. No more important issue could there be for us than to think about this on a mission Sunday. God said to Ezekiel, tantalizingly, can these dead bones live. Through that violent wind from heaven, God said to the first Christians, I'm committed to this project. As you preach the gospel in the world and the wind of the Spirit blows, many who are dead in sin will be raised through my Son to new life. Get on. Preach the gospel. And this is what helps the church to make advances with the gospel when it looks as if there are places which simply will not accept it. And there's no shortage of those. I have a good friend, actually the founder of uh, Frontiers, whose representative would have been with you today if everything had gone as planned. Uh, Greg Livingston, who founded Frontiers to send church planting teams into unreached Muslim people groups, quite a vision to have told me about being tremendously encouraged when uh, he unearthed uh, a letter. Uh, he was doing some research into the coming of the gospel uh, to Korea a couple of hundred years ago. Now, today we're used to thinking of the tremendous strength 
of the church, at least in southern Korea. But of course, that's only a very recent phenomenon. 200 years ago plus, there was tremendous hostility to the gospel in Korea. And Greg told me about coming across a letter from an American missionary who had just arrived. I think he was in a country neighboring to Korea. He was about to get go into the country. And he wrote back to his mission board in the USA saying, look, just don't bother trying to send any more missionaries out here. This is futile. The very few known Korean believers are being killed. Missionaries are being thrown out. Or worse, there is no future for the gospel in this country. I, I can imagine myself being just as despairing had I been in his shoes and seeing what was before his eyes. Resolute opposition to the gospel. Unyielding hatred towards the gospel. An impossible situation. Now that mission board chose to ignore what was written. They kept sending to Korea, as did many other mission agencies, men and women who would preach the gospel. And that attitude was shaped by the wind from heaven that blew on the day of Pentecost. God's word would be preached. God's spirit would use it. Dead would be raised to life. They knew the wind was still blowing, and it is still blowing today. Sign number two that accompanied the pouring out of the Holy Spirit. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. Now, again, obviously it's the Old Testament which enables us to understand what that would have meant to them. In the Old Testament, many, many incidents where the appearance of supernatural fire signifies God is present. Present to bless, present to guide, present to judge, whatever. God is present. Now, of course, God is always present. But it was a sign which said to people, look, I really am here. Moses at the burning bush, out in the desert with his sheep, sees the bush on fire, goes over. What's happening here? God speaks to him from within the bush. See, the fire is symbolizing that God really was present. So the tongues of fire on the day of Pentecost, a special sign that God's presence was with them, and therefore that he would always be with them, even when the visible tongues of fire were withdrawn. God would be there. And another very important detail with regard to this sign, a tongue of fire resting on each one of them, and how very important that was and is. Yes, there's a tremendous sense in which God's presence is among the community of believers as a community. But as well as that reality, God's presence by his Spirit was with every last one of them individually. You probably had this thought before. It wasn't that tongue of fire was there on Peter and James and John, the apostles, those with the main responsibility for preaching the gospel. No, with every single one of them. A most vivid reminder that as God takes forward his project of the gospel being preached to the ends of the earth, there is a role for everyone within his church to play. Tongue of fire and everyone in this project. I can give many instances of where 
this has come home to me with some force, but I was thinking, uh, I've often thought of a very moving moment I had in a visit to uh, Brussels many years ago as part of an outreach team working with the church uh, in the city. And uh, one day the pastor of the church um, shared with us over an evening meal with the team about an elderly lady whose funeral he had just taken. He told us how she had formed a very deep friendship with a number of British and American missionaries who had been part of their church in Brussels some years earlier. Uh, These missionaries had uh, been in Brussels to do French language study before uh, going to what was back in the 1950s known as the Belgian Congo. Uh, And this uh, elderly lady had become very, very friendly with a significant number of these uh, young uh, British and American missionaries. In due time, they left to go overseas, and this Belgian woman kept closely in touch with them, lots of letter writing, fervent, passionate prayer for them in their work for God. Then, what is now known as the uh, Simba Rebellion broke out in the Congo, uh, a Marxist-inspired rebellion which was violently anti-Christian. Many Congolese believers uh, were, uh, were butchered, and so too were some of those missionaries who had done their French language study in Brussels. Badly treated, raped, beaten, many to whom this elderly Belgian lady had become close. And she had been so deeply involved emotionally in their work for Christ. Then when the news reached Brussels of what had happened in Africa, it pushed her over the edge mentally. She lived the rest of her life quietly, peaceably, but bearing the mental consequences of her tremendous prayer commitment to those servants of Christ who had suffered for the gospel. She herself hadn't gone to Africa. She herself hadn't preached the gospel to the people there who needed to learn about Christ. But she was part of the project, wasn't she? She had prayed passionately for Africa over those years. And she bore those honorable war wounds for her part in the gospel reaching the Congo. No one would have, I think, seen a tongue of fire resting on her head as on the day of Pentecost. But wasn't it there? Yes, it was. God's presence in her life, enabling her to do her bit in this and to bear immense emotional suffering through identifying with the cause of the gospel. Then the third remarkable sign of God's resourcing of the church for its task. Verses 4, 6, 11. They began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. A crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. We hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongues. I can never read those verses without thinking wistfully. I wish that gift had been around when I was struggling with modern languages at school. Not something I've ever been any good at. But what is the point of that remarkable sign? You see, it was not necessary for the Jews in Jerusalem to understand what the apostles were saying about God, that the gospel should be spoken in their tongues. Let's get that. That, They didn't need that. If the first Christians had spoken of the wonders of God in either 
Greek or Aramaic, then the Jews visiting Jerusalem would have understood them perfectly well. And I presume that Peter, in his preaching, did not preach in all those languages that are referred to. In order to understand, they did not need to hear the gospel in the languages of the countries from which they had come. So what is the point of this sign? I think it's not hard to understand. Those Jews in Jerusalem heard the languages of their non-Jewish, Gentile compatriots. They heard the declaration of the wonders of God in the languages of their Gentile neighbors in their homelands. The wonders of God being talked about, perhaps sung about, in those languages of the Gentiles. Quite a mind-boggling thing for those uh, Jews in Jerusalem uh, to get their heads around. The Gentiles. Gentile languages. The wonders of God being spoken about, being sung about in those languages. The languages of those people where we have come from. The implication being that the blessing of the one true living God through Jesus Christ was for them as well. It's a great signpost set up by God that this gospel that brings his blessing and declares his wonders is to go to everybody. Imagine that I had the capacity to invent some wonderful product that I thought would market pretty well. And I asked you to come to my home and said, look, I've, I've invented this little gizmo and uh, yes, I think this should sell quite well. And look, I've produced um, a list of instructions here about how to operate this thing. And if you read paragraph one in English and then saw paragraph two in French and then you saw Arabic script and uh, Greek script and Chinese script and Japanese script, you would say, well, Gordon, clearly you have quite big uh, expectations of this product. It's going to sell everywhere. It's going to go everywhere. That's just what God is saying. It's a sign saying, this is going to go everywhere. It must go everywhere. It will go everywhere. It's a wonderful thing when local churches get their heads round that reality that this good news of Jesus Christ will go must go everywhere and we are really going to invest ourselves in that. Let me close with a reference to another uh, challenging and inspiring piece of um, uh, research uh, into missionary activity that um, a friend shared with me. Uh, we have two very good friends who have um, been with Wycliffe and worked in uh, West Africa uh, they've completed the translation of the New Testament into the uh, tribal language um, uh, that, that they were committed to. But while they were uh, in Ivory Coast, um, the wife became very aware that there was one particular tribal group not far away from where they were, where the gospel had made uh, earlier and more extensive inroads than in any of the other uh, groups that were, um, that were nearby. And she thought, is there any reason? Uh, is there something in the archives that can perhaps give um, a clue as to why this has been? Uh, so she began to go into correspondence from many years ago uh, between churches in this country uh, 
who had sent missionaries out and the mission situation into which they went. And she discovered, I think it was going back to the late 19th, um, maybe mid-19th century, that there was a cluster of churches in the West Country, I think Methodist churches in the main, who were really into sending, sending, sending uh, their best people out to that part of West Africa. And in the letter she discovered they just died like flies. They didn't have the advantage of uh, modern uh, medicine that would help with malaria and what yellow fever, dengue fever, all those other uh, dreadful things that um, are easier to deal with now but were uh, just uh, fatal uh, back then. So they would send people, they'd die. News would come back, the death of this husband, that wife, uh, those children, whole families. Now what was the response? She said the response was what fascinated her. Well, imagine what it would be like. Uh, this a little exercise. Pick a couple of families from here and you say, we send them to such and such a place and they die. They're either butchered by people or they die. The news comes back. What do you say? Oh, well, hmm. Yes. Their spiritual instinct in those churches to say was, we must immediately replace them. Uh, we must send another family. They may die, well, we'll send another family. And the whole attitude was, they've got to be replaced because the gospel has got to reach the ends of the earth. It made me think of uh, the attitude, at least in some of the more patriotic uh, parts of the British Isles in the First World War, when you know, half the town would be butchered in, in the, you know, the Battle of the Somme or something like that. So they said, well, we'll just have to send another regiment to replace them. don't think we'd do that today, but they did then. And it was the spiritual equivalent of that. Got to replace people. Got to replace people. And those sending churches were so passionate to follow God's sign, the gospel has got to go everywhere, that that's just what they did. They sent replacements. God honored it. The gospel made tremendous inroads in that particular area because of that. Let's wrap this up. The resourcing of the church, the violent wind from heaven, signifying that as God's word is preached, as the gospel of the death and resurrection of Christ is proclaimed, the spirit will work and bring life where there is death. The fire of God coming, resting in each one. God's presence is with his people when they commit to this. With every individual who is part of this, whatever part they fulfill in the task being done. And then the task itself for which this resourcing takes, takes place. The sign is very clear. It's for the ends of the earth. There's something about God's purpose that says it's beyond where we are now. It's further on from where we are now. Do any of you know of the Joshua Project? Does that ring any bells? Uh, I was getting a new laptop set up recently by one of my younger friends who's better at that sort of thing than I am. He said, every time you go online, make sure it goes via the Joshua Project. I think if you Google Joshua Project, you'll get this. And every day there's an unreached people group. There's a few facts about them. And I'm trying to discipline myself before I go to my emails or my cheap Ryanair flights or whatever it is I'm after. Um, I'll try and pray for that unreached people group. So I'm made aware every day there's something beyond there's a further on aspect to this. But God set up the signpost in the day of Pentecost through that gift of languages. Further on, 
beyond where we are now. 